Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Pound. On today's programme, I'm speaking to the Danish-American artist Adam Jeppesen, who's just been in London for his show Evidence of Absence at Black Box Projects. Jeppesen has been regarded as a photographic artist, constantly pushing at the boundaries of what photographic practice can be. But this latest show sees him step away from the darkroom to embrace three dimensions in the form of monolithic sculptures that appear like stalagmites displayed on plinths, in vitrines. But these are no natural cave-dwelling mineral wonders of tectonic magic. Jefferson's sculptures are decidedly man-made. They look like decayed concrete, eroded cement, or wind-blown brutalist architecture. Perhaps we've sped forward in time and are inspecting the remnants of a well-meaning art gallery cast in concrete in classic mid-20th century fashion. But we'll hear from Jefferson how these sculptures are informed by his photographic practice later. In that same show, Evidence of Absence, Jefferson showed a room of sculpture and a room of anthrotypes. Anthrotypes look like photographs and are a sort of photograph, but not ones made with a camera. Again, we'll hear shortly about how these beguiling and abstracted works came into being. They appear like faded sepia portraits. Are they really there at all? Jefferson is well known as a travelling artist too. He made an epic 473-day journey from the North Pole to Antarctica on vessels as diverse as ice-breaking ships and bicycles on which he rode with his gear on his back from Canada to Mexico, as you do. All this adds to images, perhaps. So let's talk to Adam Jefferson and put it into focus. So an anthrotype, I think, like officially should be a, a, a way of, of, of utilizing plant pigments and taking out pigments from plants and mainly flowers, actually, in order to create images. Now, that can be done in many different ways. And traditionally, it's been used by where you would take, for example, flower petals and you would grind them up and out of that, you would extract a type of a juice that you could then paint on paper and use that where you would place a negative or any kind of object really on top of it and you would leave it in the sun for an extended period of time and the sun would be bleaching uh, the part that had nothing on top of it and once you remove, let's say, you had put, put a coin on top of it once you remove your coin you would kind of have like a, the outline or, or the shadow of this object that you had placed on top of it and so I've kind of utilized that technique, but in a slightly different way because I work on much larger formats. Whereas if you are to to grind up flower petals and extract juice, I would never, you know, get any very large pictures done because it requires so much material. So I actually use a technique that's like a mix between the technique of natural dyeing, of, of, of dyeing fabrics using mm-hmm. natural colors and the, the tradition of, of anthrotype. You're not using photographic paper here then. You're no. using just using paper that's been dyed. So this is sort of pre-photography, but it's using the same kind of idea, I suppose, but without the darkroom, without the oh, yeah, negative. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, in a certain way, you know, a, a much more sustainable way of working with photography. So I use paper that's that's actually meant for 
for watercolor and that absorbs the pigments into it and therefore you know it's a positive i mean it's all an experiment like yeah. from the beginning this wasn't anything that <laughs> i have a feeling we're going to get into experimental wars i mean i'm glad quickly. we didn't have this conversation like six months ago because i have no idea what i'm doing yeah what are these things but, about i have no idea <laughs> but i've you know i've kind of like you know through trial and error I've, mm. I've, i've come to now see which materials are working which types of colors working which types of plants work right and um and how do i actually get a desired result which is you know it's an ongoing process and we should say that the pictures that you've made the the anthrotypes that you've made they're quite abstracted but they are they're also very they're recognizably portraits but abstracted portraits we might mm. say mm. you've talked about the experimental nature of working with anthrotypes and working with these dyes and working with kind of very very natural the sort of natural environment in as much as it is how precise can you be and how, so so we should say that these are as we say these are portraits of people some of them are more defined and acute than others mm. but how did you arrive how did you arrive at the images on the paper i mean even that came you know from a process of of like running parallel to me actually discovering this technique and i think my initial uh, interest came i i i'm very process driven and i discovered this technique and this idea of actually making images out of these very simple materials like really you know boiling it down to the essence mm. and being able to create imagery from that and so in the beginning i was actually looking at at which type of images do i want to represent this idea of what it is that i'm working with and i had you know over the last couple of years been working and had an interest which is in a certain way like the actual opposite of of working with these natural materials which is a, a an interest of technology and how it influences our world and so i began looking into these computer generated images of humans that are basically created using artificial intelligence but we've kind of surpassed the point of where we're just obsessed about creating the perfect image and about the image that looks artificial and now you're actually having these images being created that looks as if they're you know shot on a telephone they're 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 as informal in their expression and i was fascinated by that and i so i began printing out some of these images and seeing how would they kind of collide with this very natural process so kind of like this the natural world colliding with the synthetic and seeing what came out of that and it has resulted in these images that come across like you say some of them are easily to recognize and some of them are actually much easier to recognize if you look at them through your telephone and you yeah. kind of like go back to the technology in a way to actually see the images and and so they, this is using that sort of face recognition software that every smartphone has that's always searching for a face if you're trying to take portraits of your friends or something right right i mean it's basically just opening the camera in of itself yeah. the fact that the phone has this way of condensing you know information onto your screen the image just comes out much clearer and you will have this feeling of kind of as if in those movies where you look in the mirror and there's someone standing there and then you look behind you there's no one there <laughs> you know it, it has that eeriness to it that it's there and it's not there which i you know i i'm i'm fascinated by the way that artificial intelligence is becoming an integrated part of our life and we are now at the point where we're not necessarily even recognizing when it's present Yeah there's something really interesting there Adam as well about no, the notion notions of photography and our, our readings of photography we've become so used to taking pictures with our smartphones and expecting there often to be people in those pictures right um at gatherings and all the rest of it mm. 
we're we're primed our eyes and our sensitivity is primed to find to look at photographs that way perhaps less so in a gallery setting these anthrotypes are framed they look beautiful they're framed in black we're perhaps more trained to find abstraction in something in a frame now than we are a straight portrait of a mm. person. You know what I mean? It's a fun, you, yeah, you're, I mean, you're very there's these shifting sounds between the abstraction and the and the acute are really interesting in this. Definitely. I mean there's something about when I see the images that I use to create these so so these images are much clearer photographs of these people and somehow they don't touch me in the same way as they do when they've kind of gone through this abstraction. Mm-hmm. It's as if I emotionally can engage with them on a deeper level when it's an abstraction than when it's a photograph mimicking any other photograph I'm actually seeing. And so in that sense, I, I think the abstraction in general allows us to engage, like I say, on a, on a more emotional scale or level and get out of my own mind, you know, and actually feel it. And I mean, that's something I, I try to include in all my work that as the viewer perceives it, that they somehow engage with it. Well, they're being asked to do some work. The viewer is having to do a bit of right. work. Right. I mean, these specifically, you have to do some work in order to, you know, fully experience them just because your movement away or towards the frames in this case will make the image come out clearer or less clear. If you're standing right in front of it, it may just look like, you know, a shadow play on a piece of paper. But when you step back, you like the face actually comes into into clarity. I want to give people a bit of backstory to you because we talked about experimentalism and you've put sort of some objects in your way in terms of making these anthrotypes and in terms of making the sculptures. None more so in terms of putting obstacles in your way than great distances and continents and things. You've been an amazing, prodigious traveller throughout your career. You went on a 478-day journey from the North Pole to Antarctica Tell the listeners what, what, what the genesis of that project was. Well, I mean, that project was brought about because I was asked to do an exhibition based on a couple of images that I had taken at this time. I had done a series of works that were around landscapes, like very desolate landscapes shot around full moon or basically lit with, with moonlight. And uh, I was asked if I was interested in doing the show and I should, you know, I, they, they were interested in showing around 15 to 20 pieces. And so I quickly calculated that in order to make that happen, I'd have to spend around a year shooting for this project. I lived a number of years in the U.S., and I remember I, when I lived there, I was fascinated by this concept that the North and South American continents were connected, and you could actually go from you know one tip of one continent to the southern tip of the other one. For most people, that's just a fact. For you, it's a challenge. I like. Well, that. it's something that I you know I, I remember as a kid, I was like, we should do that on a vacation, yeah. <laughs> you know? and it never really, you know, it never bore fruit. And then all of a sudden, this this idea came up that oh, over a course of around a year I could actually be documenting the connectedness between the continents you know kind of looking beyond the political borders and actually looking how the landscape integrates and fades and gradiates into another landscape and so that was the kind of what was written into this application that I that I had ready to start raising raising funds to actually realize this project and I quickly saw that somewhere in Alaska to the tip of South America is not 
I, it, it, it's not that sexy to say, and so it was easier to convey North Pole to South Pole. That was like an A to a B. Yeah. That was easier to understand. And so that's how that came about. And then the challenge, of course, thereafter was how do I get to the North Pole? And I was able to get there on board a research vessel. And when I reached the North Pole, that's when I you know, turned on the clock. And then 478 days later, I made it as far south as I could in Antarctica. And the journey in of itself changed its nature very quickly i mean it, it, it as i say it had been you know it, it had almost like this project description as you obviously need to begin these types of projects but at you know a few months into the project i saw i wasn't getting this type of work done mm-hmm. and it turned into a very different journey that actually ended up being much more about my own experience of recording these landscapes in solitude and seeing how you know that time spent alone influenced both my memory of the place and my my vision of these areas that I was going through and the realities of that journey and your solitude and the and the modes of transport you took often walking you cycled from canada to mexico mexico no biggie uh, <laughs> we've all been there it's easier than catching a bus um, yeah uh, but it obviously changed I expect it changed you as a person but it changed you as an artist it changed your work didn't it what What was the work you were doing before was it sort of fine art photography was it landscapes because certainly you, you ended up making making work that is painterly not to I know you're a photographer but I mean now I use I use that as a as a as a compliment, if you know what I mean, it's it's, it's right. abstracted to a point that it looks like it's not even got anything to do with photography in a way. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd always said that f- photography just happened to be sort of the medium that I found myself naturally. Well, it's what I came across, and I found I naturally understood the workings of it. But I have never been, in a certain sense, like dedicated to photography, and I've always, I think in a certain way, searched for ways of breaking out of the medium or at least pushing it to the bounds when the medium no longer is at the forefront, but it's more the expression of the work. Mm -hmm. And I see certain things that are complicated with photography, perhaps mostly the whole idea that's so bound up on facts and on reality, and it's constantly being questioned about, you know, where and when does this take place? And and, and, and at times it gets in the way of like the experience because people are constantly referencing themselves to it. Ah, the 18th of, of November, 2006. Oh, I remember I was there. And it's like, well, we're not seeing, you know, the work that's in front of us. And so before I went on this trip, I think my approach to photography had been, again, what I guess I was brought up to is that photography also has this idea of, the, of perfection, of, you know, there's certain things that you can't accept within photography. You can so more now. But this idea that, you know, when you make a print, it can't have any dust inside. And, you know, God forbid that happens. You have to, you know, take it out of the frame again and, and maybe even it's reprint ruined, it. It's ruined. Yeah. And there was a lot yeah. of time spent on that. And and a lot of time spent on, you know, these minimal corrections to an image that in reality, looking back now, had nothing to do with the actual expression. And so this trip, just out of its pure nature of, of traveling the way I was doing, it seemed unavoidable that the my work you know got bumps and scratches and dust came into the cassettes i was using a you know a very large format camera that's an old type of a camera which where your films are in these cassettes and you load a cassette and there's one image on each side or one 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 picture on each side 
but over you know months of traveling like you're saying on a bicycle a piece of sand a sand grain that comes in there starts you know eroding the film away and scratching it and once i developed all of this material i quickly realized that all the work i had done had you know quote unquote been ruined and so it was I mean, either <laughs> just, you know, kind of like imagining that the last two years never happened or accepting the reality of it. And so I did the latter and, and you know, had a realization that if I am to be genuine with my work and the expression in my work, it's important to include all of those imperfections because that perhaps at times speaks much more around the circumstances of taking an image than the actual motif that's you know on the image we've got to fast forward to your sculptural work and i guess to get us from the the anthrotypes in your photographic journey to these sculptures to my eye when i first saw them i wondered what they had to do with your former practice or not your former practice the rest of your mm, work mm. what relation do they have are they do they have anything to do with photography well they do have to do with photography but it's been a transition that hasn't happened overnight so often when things are presented like in a book format and you go from one chapter to the next it it might seem quite abrupt but it has been you know it has been gliding from working with photography trying to kind of see how far can I stretch the photographic medium, which resulted in a series called Tanks, which are these images. Well, there's no real image. I mean, they're cameraless works, but exposed uh, cyanotypes, which is another like old technique onto silk that is then strung out within these kind of tanks. And yeah. they're then filled with a clear oil, so they kind of seem as if they're suspended. And at the same time, there's a lot of tension of these cloths kind of being pulled in different directions. And that was like, a, you know, my first real like three-dimensional object that I was creating using photography. And I realized that lots of the work which I appreciate doing and, you know, within my practice is the more physical work. And so it seemed natural for me to try to explore that you know, put an emphasis on the physicality and less on the medium. And so I quickly, you know, started working with different types of materials and, and you know, and, and settled on this working a lot with sand. You know, I, I tried to work with, with materials that are easily accessible and are very simple because I'm not, you know, I'm not classically trained. So I don't come with a, you know, a suitcase of knowledge of, you know, how, you know, what I can do with different materials. So for me, it's every day is an experiment. <laughs> the Carrara like, marble is safe for the time being. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, for the time being. Okay. And uh, no, but it's, I mean, you know, I, I could know how I would work with sand and, and, and with this pigment and with cement. And so I, I, I went about creating works that had, as well had a certain photographic aspect to them in the sense that when viewing them I would see them myself as if they were photographs as if they were photographic images so they you know they had the same thing but they were created you know non-photographically you could say yeah and these are astonishing works they are sort of like stalagmites they're pillars but they're sort of decayed or they've got decay designed into them right they might well remind viewers of you know an ancient Greek sort of a classical structure that's fallen to bits or maybe a modern structure that's been blasted by a bomb mm, or mm. water erosion or it's a bit Ozymandias isn't it 
there's this sort of huge kind of colossus in the desert that's yeah. been wiped away. They, they look like ruined buildings. They look like a ruined s- sort of skyline of skyscrapers, or at least in you know, kind of a contemporary Western city, perhaps. Mm. Where are we in your head when you know when when you're making those things? Because they seem very kind of very metaphorical for the for the state of the world. They feel like perhaps a bit of a warning, almost. I know you don't want to be too explicit about these. Well, things. Well, I mean, but- I had especially following this long trip. You know, lots of my work had been around my own subjective experience of of being in the world and of doing these trips and my experience with solitude. And but it, it came back to my own experience all the time. And I reached a certain point when I wanted to do work that I felt would perhaps be more universal and would speak of, you know, my observations and perhaps in, to a certain degree my concerns about the world today. And I also felt in a certain way as an artist that there was a, you know, it, it was an interesting way of adding to that debate. And so I began doing research around this topic called existential risks. Is that your, the band you're in at college? Right. <laughs> Yeah, and on drums, <laughs> exactly. I just demoted you. We probably lead guitar on, on drums. Nick Ex- Bostrom. So he, <laughs> so he's the director of this place called the Future of Humanity Institute, which is a part of Oxford University, and they basically look into. I the idea is to to look into threats towards humanity as we know it, and 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 threats that will be of such an enormous scale that it could change humanity as we know it on Earth, or perhaps even eradicate human life on earth which in a certain way and and lots of the time gets you know in popular culture gets shown you know in in a more like hollywoodish sensationalist way but at the back of all of this there are some very real you know issues to to take up and to consider um amongst them artificial intelligence or biotechnology things that we seem to be at a point when we're still so you know, woed by the possibilities of technology and less so by considering the perhaps the limitations we need to impose on it or the knowledge we need to have in order to know what are the risks associated with these technologies. So there's a theory that states that is there a reason why no other place in the universe we found any signs of intelligent life and perhaps it is because once a society reaches a certain level of intelligence, it ends up becoming self-destructive because the power that comes with all this intelligence is easier to have than to actually have the wisdom. The wisdom to actually you know, sustain life is, is something that comes with maturity. And perhaps society matures at a much slower pace than, it in, that, than its intelligence actually rises. And so the idea of this is, is, has been posed as something called the Great Filter, that any society, in order to become what's known as a mature society, it needs to pass through this filter. And so I made an exhibition, you know, kind of with that theory in, in Denmark called the Great Filter, which poses this question of, are we perhaps at a point now with all the technology where we are heading towards this Great Filter? And if so, we should definitely be aware of it. And, you know, an argument has been made that, existential risks should be brought to the forefront as much as climate policy has been brought. And, you know, if you look at climate policy in the, or, or the idea of climate policy in the 1960s, it wasn't really present until it became part of, of the discussion in the late 70s. And perhaps we are at the point when we need to, you know, bring existential risks to a more conscious part of our policymaking, which of course is very difficult. I mean, if we take 
you know, climate policy and we see how slow that is, it's because it's something that takes place over such a long period of time that, you know, few politicians are willing to actually go in and kind of bet their career on something that may not result in anything in their own lifetime. And existential risks might even be much slower still. And so it's a, it, it's definitely tricky, but I think that culture and art is is one of those places where, you know, you can actually be part of that debate. And so I thought it relatively you know, relevant for myself to to try to engage in that debate and to make work around that. You know, I'm not in any sort of way informed enough to make, you know, like clear judgments on it, but I do see certain tendencies in my own life and, you know, in the life around me to think like, ah, you know, I would like to, you know, comment on this as if nothing else to be part and perhaps open up for a discussion. There are no wall texts in the gallery. Mm. What's your policy on that? I mean, these things are freighted with such a huge kind of um, mother load of meaning behind these things, such a deep kind of metaphorical kind of sort of thrall to them. Out of interest, I'm wondering, because you talk so eloquently about about the the process behind them or the the thoughts you're thinking as you perfect these imperfect things. You're asking the viewer to do a lot, but Mm. then I suppose they can listen to this (laughs) and know what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain degree, I think, of like, you know, how psychology works. If if you're being told to think something, Mm. it actually doesn't imprint that strongly. Whereas if you feel as if you are discovering it, it will have a much stronger impact. And so if we take the anthrotypes, which of the images or the motifs that, are, that, that you see are actually of these people that have never existed or, and are images that are created using artificial intelligence, if that was written on the wall, you would immediately be viewing them with that intention and with that knowledge. And I think you would, there would be a certain distance or you wouldn't allow yourself to engage in the same way. Whereas if you see them and you actually feel for these images and perhaps think, oh, they're like old, you know, nostalgic images. And then afterwards you find out that they are actually, you know, they're empty of of any human. (laughs) That, for me at least, touches me in another, it touches me differently and deeper than, than, than that, you know, me enforcing some kind of like rules over these works. And I have always, you know, believed that once, you know, I put my work out into the world, the interpretation of it, you know, is is free for you know it's free for interpretation mm. and to read things into it. I also, in a certain way, I mean, I definitely know that I have a certain fetish for these for these landscapes that are very desolate areas where human life can't be sustained. I mean, I am fascinated by that point of where you know nature is far stronger than we are, and I use those. You know, I feel you know humbled to be in those types of places and to experience that. And there's something around these the the sculptural work, and especially there's a very large sculptural work on a wall, which is, you know, kind of a landscape, I guess you could say, seen from above, which in a certain way I use almost as a you know as a space for meditation as well. Now there can you can then meditate over the you know the human state and and the state of the world today, or you can simply use it as something you know more personal and and more about yourself. I mean, many of these things you know you can, you can look at them on a very large scale, or you can look at them on a very personal scale as well.
That was the artist Adam Jefferson, and you can, of course, find out more about and purchase his work if you're so inclined at blackboxprojects.com. Art. And that brings us to the end of today's episode of Monocle on Culture, which was produced by Holly Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thanks for tuning in.